What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Wooker Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We're ready to go or what? Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. from behind could use the fist there's a great shot of the bludgeoned head of Brian Adias as Madrill puts him in the sleeper lock from behind as the lumberjacks watch anxiously from their perch at ringside Madrillization strikes again those repeated quick tough blows by Madrill he spreads Adias out but gets only two Kerry Brian Adias appears to be in bad shape. Is there anything he can do to get momentum back? Yes, quickly? Brian Adias, he can go for a reversal when he turned buckles, and Brian could reverse it right there. There you go. You called it, pal. That's right. He reversed it, and now he's got an advantage going. Oh, oh he's gone for it. Son of a gun. He did it. Oh, no. Oh, no. That was oh, my God. My God. He's, he he's has done down. something Same with thing. his fist, and Same that is thing. the dreaded Oriental yeah, he's, he's down. And Al Madrill drops like a light in the ring. He's, 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 right now, his blood is not going to his brain. It could be a bad problem. Al Madrill may die right now. Please, somebody. Hey, get some help to him right now. Lumberjacks rush into the ring. Brian Adias out here. Look at his fingers curled. Look at his fingers curled. He's not breathing. He's not breathing at all in his upper body right now. He could die. This is terrible. Brian Adias' move should be banned. Forever. Brian Adia celebrates the Oriental tool use as he runs up the aisle. The doctor has come into the ring. Let's look at this again, Kerry. In the oh. corner, the reversal that reversal. you call takes place. Then Brian comes in, goes here to the midsection, comes. and here it comes. He holds the hand high. Boom. Bam. Okay. And Al Madrill vibrates from pain in the center of the ring as he has fallen down. The lumberjacks oh, moved in. The doctor out. is there. Mark, now. I got to go to the ring. Okay, Kerry Von Erich will leave us here from the broadcast booth. 
and head for the ring as we are in grave concern over the condition of Al Madrill. The fans know what has happened. This is why this move has been so controversial as Carrie-Ann now tries to help. We're going to break and come back and give right, you a full let's report. Let's roll it in here right now. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by the Figures Toy Company. Figures Toy Company is revolutionizing the wrestling figure industry by creating collectible action figures of the hottest talent in the wrestling business today, as well as paying homage to the legends of the past. These fully posable 6-inch action figures are compatible with modern wrestling figures from other companies and feature intricate designs and realistic clothing accessories. Some of those rising stars include Tama Tonga, Sammy Callahan, Chris Hero, and Joey Ryan, as well as the legends, how can we forget, our co-hosts, the franchise, Shane Douglas, Jerry Lynn, Jim Cornette, Mikey Whipwreck, The Blue Meanie, Just Incredible, the list goes on and on, and you can check out the entire line of both the rising stars of professional wrestling and the legends of professional wrestling at figurestoycompany.com and a little bit more about that in just a couple of minutes. But if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner here on the two-man power trip of wrestling, the one and only JP, John Paz and John. Today we are taking a little ride down to Texas and we are talking a lot of world class as we welcome in Brian Adias to the two-man power trip of wrestling and it's always cool when we can get somebody as uh, as different as a guest as Brian Adias was on this show because he's not the guest you're going to hear on different interview shows and, and I think he was the absolute perfect guest for this show because we were able to dive deep not only into the world-class territory, not only into the, uh, the intimate days of the Adias and Von Erich friendship, but also all the territories and all the stops in between that Brian Adias made throughout his entire career. It was a really cool, fun walk down memory lane, and I think it really caught us both off guard that we were able to get so much awesome world-class detail out there in this interview. And before we kind of get rolling into this intro, I, I got to point out the fact that the world-class championship wrestling territory itself, Fritz Von Erich and, and the whole Von Erich family, really were ahead of their time as it came to how shows were promoted, how TV was presented, and really set the stage for uh, some of those big match feels that they had. And obviously the Von Erichs versus the Freebirds being one of the greatest rivalries, not just of the entire decade of the 80s, but of all time in the business. It all stemmed out of this little territory there in Dallas, Texas. And Brian Adias was a great friend of the Von Erichs, and I feel like we get a look into the Von Erich family in a way that, especially on this show, we never have before. And really, this to this day, you really can only get one or two other people that could have that deep perspective in there, especially Kevin being one of the only people to have some of these intimate stories like Brian Adias has. But John, I'm going to welcome you in here now, and I really got to say, uh, it was a great find by you to get Brian Adias on the show. But again, it's just so cool that we're able to dive deep into the world-class territory because I feel like it's a territory, albeit as famous as it, as it was, and having so many superstars come out of it, it just does not get the recognition here in 2018 that I feel it should. No, it definitely doesn't, and it really should. It was such an underrated territory. Von Eric's family just lived, breathed, and eventually, unfortunately, most of them died part of the wrestling business and sometimes some unscrupulous terms and some crazy things that happened there. But 
they just embodied professional wrestling. There were so many great things that came out of that territory. And then there were so many tragedies as well. So, I mean, it's a real true life, great story that was kind of intertwined in the wrestling business about the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows. And I really feel like world-class should be remembered on a much higher scale than it is. I mean, if we're looking back at great territories and we're looking back, great underrated talent, if we're looking back at something where you can really, you know, stick your, your finger out there and say, man, that is something we need to watch. Or that's something we need to bring back to wrestling. A lot of that will be from world-class and that's so much good stuff, so much good talent. So many underrated guys that kind of go underappreciated. And I feel like Brian uh, Diaz is one of those guys that is just totally underappreciated. And I love talking to those guys. I feel like they have a story to tell you. Not a lot of people have heard it. Or if, if you have, you haven't heard it in a while. So that's why I like these more rare guests and really kind of can go out on a limb and really find some hidden gems out there. And Brian really is a big one. Lifelong friend of Kerry Von Eric, known him since they were little kids. They went to school together. They grew up together. What a great story to tell that he has that not a lot of other people have. Like you mentioned, Chad, I mean, that's a story that very few can tell. Basically, friends as, as children, you grow up in the wrestling, you know, all the way through, and you grow up in the wrestling business together, and you become huge, huge stars down in Texas for world class. I mean, just some unbelievable stuff that we got here in this interview that you know, you're not going to get other places. So I really, really enjoyed this. I, I love the rarity. I know we posted a teaser out there on Twitter and I already got a couple of Facebook messages about it. Like, wow, Brian Adias, what a rare find or, you know, wow, that's a rare one. Uh, you know, keep, keep it up with the rare guests. They're loving it. So I love that it's over already and the episode hasn't even come out yet. So that, that definitely is something that I love. And Chad, I know something that you love is when we can kind of go behind the scenes and find some stuff in the territory days that you're not necessarily going to hear from anybody else. Yeah, and it was the perfect guess. I mean, going not just into the detail we did with World Class, but then when Brian gets to talk about the fact that when he went out and Fritz was the one who urged him to go out and see some of these other territories and to travel to other places, uh, the fact that he worked with Dory Funk Jr. every night, I mean, what kind of a, a lesson is that? You know what I mean? That is an unbelievable education that you could get in the wrestling world. And when we spoke to Dory Funk, you know, about a month and a half ago, we kind of got to see how much anything he teaches kind of resonates with you. And Brian then comes back to the world-class territory, and he's able to really just switch it up a little bit, turn up the juice, turn up the heat. And you see him get better and better and better. And he was a hell of an athlete and he was a hell of a competitor. And uh, one of the underrated heel turns of all time is when he does turn on the Von Erics. And the clip that I play off the top of this episode, you got to go find it on YouTube. It's him versus Al Madrill, his former tag team partner in a lumberjack match. And you just see when he turns up the heat and he hits Al Madrill and Al Madrill can't breathe and Kerry Von Erich hits the ring, you just see literally how that world class audience and the, the crowd, they just absolutely were so wrapped up into everything and you need somebody as good as Brian Adias to help sell some of these angles and John I know we usually get into a little bit of a WWE Network recommendation but I think I know where you're going to send the folks for a recommendation without us even talking about it I can read your mind I know what you're going to do but tell us before we uh, we kind of get into this interview what do you recommend they go if they're going to go look for something world-class related well I will throw you a little 
bit of a curveball because on the network they do have world class and i feel like that is kind of like a hidden gem i know they have their own separate hidden gems on the network but that is a hidden gem i feel like that people need to start realizing so you got a lot of world class on the network you do have mid-atlantic and jcp on there as well which brian did spent a couple of years there so i would definitely go out and, and use the network as a tool because me as a fan i always want several different areas or several several different things where i can kind of go and watch not just one specific thing but i want a couple options so that'll be option one go to the network even type in world class but even type in brian adias and you'll find some world class you'll find a a tv title match against tully blanchard from jcp uh, the mid-atlantic territory so that is some great stuff but option number two i definitely wherever you can find it high spots wherever you can find it get the heroes of world class documentary and i think that's where you were headed chad with with guessing what i was going to say so we get the heroes of world class documentary it is unbelievable wb had their own the, the triumph and, and tragedy of world class but heroes of world class arguably one of the best wrestling documentaries of all time check that if you can find it, I mean, I remember when that thing came out, and we uh, we went nuts trying to find that that bad boy in t- 2003, 2004. That wasn't as easy to get things uh, as it is now, and uh, it's probably, if not one of the best wrestling documentaries of all time. Just so intricate, and every big character of world class is covered, and it is so awesome. And if you haven't learned or studied or, or read up on world class territory, that's pretty much your visual bible. So if you can go out and find that, go out and find it. But as we get into the wrap-up here, we want to implore you to head on over to Figures Toy Company and WrestlingSuperstore.com. Check out the Legends of Professional Wrestling line as well as the Rising Stars of Professional Wrestling line. And if you're on Twitter, head on over to our Triple Threat Podcast page, which is at the 3 Threat Pod, and find out how you can win your very own franchise Shane Douglas Figures Toy Company figure. Uh, the first franchise figure in almost 20 years in any kind of wrestling figure toy line. And man, did they not spare any detail uh, off of the franchise's uh, body and bean. I mean, they got his tattoo perfectly. They got his tassels on his boots perfectly. They got the articulation of those biceps as well, Shane, if you're listening. As well as that uh, that curmudgeon uh, look on your face. <laughs> Just joking. But Shane, uh, seriously, uh, please check out... Uh, Figures Toy Company and WrestlingSuperstore.com, uh, where this budding relationship we have with them is only going to get bigger. But we need your help, and we need you to support them. So please check out both of those lines. There's so many more figures coming soon. There's a Francine figure coming soon. There's a Shane Strickland figure coming soon. And uh, you never know who's going to end up in that figure line next. So please keep your eyes on that and stay tuned to the two-man power trip of wrestling and the Triple Threat Podcast for more. We've got a lot of amazing stuff coming here in the following weeks. And we want you to be a part of it. So please reach out and touch us. Let us hear what's going on in your world, what you think of the shows, and how uh, you feel everything's going with uh, the Triple Threat, with the Jimmy Power Trip. We love to hear from everybody. So, John, as we wrap it up here, why don't you do this? Hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business, and let's get it on over to Brian Adidas. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. 
Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, a three-time former WCCW Tag Team Champion, former WCCW Six-Man Tag Champion, as well as a television champion and an NWA Texas Champion. He is a world-class legend. He is a Brian Adias. Enjoy. get it rolling right here and right now joining us on the line tonight is a three-time world-class championship wrestling tag team champion he's also a former world-class championship wrestling six-man television and an nwa texas champion he is the one and only brian adias thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling glad to be here Brian, we appreciate you coming on, and it's uh, it's so cool to talk to you because, you know, you're one of those guys that when we think about world-class, that the name Brian Adias goes right to the top of the list because you got to see so much in a territory that gets pushed way to the side a little too much than, than I think it should be, uh, but it's really cool to get to talk to you because you're such a huge link to that history, and uh, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Well, I appreciate that, man. It was... Uh... World class was great. Uh, you know, I remember Carrie and I, Fritz, I was over at Fritz's house. I was getting ready. Let's see, it was like 1982, and me and Carrie went in his study, and he said, something really big is about to happen, and we were, we were like, well, what's that? And he said, there's a thing called ta- cable TV that's coming out, and we're getting ready to get on it, and world class is going to be going worldwide, nationwide and worldwide in the long run. And, you know, of course, you know, we didn't know what it was or anything like that, but we figured it out real quick when it did. So I've had people all over the country when I was traveling and going to, I went to New York in March and people said, man, these are people from the Bronx. I mean, and Queens, they said, man, I watched you every day on ESPN and world-class wrestling is the, is the best wrestling ever. So everything else just fails and fades compared to world-class. He said, you guys really got after it now. Uh, we really did. We put our hearts and souls into it, man. So, 
Yeah, and you could tell, and those New York fans always, you know, the smarter fans, the quote smarter fans always knew what was going on, but, you know, when you were able to get world class, especially with ESPN being in play, I mean, you did feel like you were seeing something really special. Now, as I was starting to watch wrestling, I know as John was starting to watch wrestling, you know, world class was more in its latter days, and it was still around, but it wasn't the powerhouse that it was in the early 1980s, but you got to see the pictures you got to see you know the articles that were written and the books that were out there that kind of detailed just the intensity of all the feuds whether it was the von erics and the freebirds or whether it was the von erics against you and al madrill or anybody that really was paired up against that legendary family uh it was always taken to the highest extent i think that's what those new york fans can appreciate they always appreciate that intensity that world class brought well, it was people told us is like, man, he said, you guys got out there and beat the crap out of each other, and you could tell it, you know. And you know, we we actually did. We always knew that, you know, when the red lights on on TV, you got to make it count. There's no do overs on live TV and even tapings. You know, I mean, you've got a you've got a show you're putting together, and I lay it on the line. You know, I went out there and I fought like a street fight. On, on a lot of my stuff, you know, and pe- people see that people, people are smart, you know, they're not, you know, there's, you know, wrestling fans, they, they, they love the wrestling part of it, but everybody liked a good scrap, you know, and I think that's what set world-class apart from the, the other ones that were, you know, more Hollywood, you know, the way the WWE has become and all that people, there's, there's, there's a, a group of people that really like that, but the old school people, they said it'll never be the same like it was down here, you know? So Yeah. And Fritz definitely, you know, doesn't get the credit that he deserves for the television integration. And like you said, knowing, not knowing cable TV as it was in 1982, you know, Fritz was so ahead of the game and, and brought in some of the better lighting and brought in a little more production value. And obviously that just makes everybody step their game up across the board. But you know, your history with the Von Erich family or the Adkinson, Adkinson family, it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see the tie-in. But what was it like kind of pre-wrestling Von Erich family versus kind of the, uh, the, the whirlwind that would become their popularity during the world-class days? Well, Carrie and I started first grade together and went all through, you know, through our senior year, 12 years together, first through 12th grade. And, of course, I knew... We knew each other. I mean, when you're six years old, you don't know what, you know, you don't know anything about wrestling or anything like that. Although his dad was wrestling here and owned the, the Dallas, you know, the Dallas wrestling deal here. I mean, I'd go over there. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything. We were just kids. We were friends before we developed into, you know, our athletics. You know, we both went to college on uh, scholarships. I went to University of Texas Arlington on a track scholarship for shot and discus and carry went to the University of Houston. You know, we were one, two in the state of Texas in the discus, and I actually went to state in the shot put as well. It was only take eight people from the whole state in your class. So he and I played first and second in the discus. But, and then he, he went one year at Houston. I went all four years University of Texas Arlington, but I wrestled. I started wrestling between my sophomore and junior year professionally and broke in and everything at the World Famous Sportatorium there in Dallas. But, uh, you know, but beforehand, I, I guess me and Terry, we were really good friends before wrestling even became part of our lives. You know what I mean? I mean, I went down there. 
when we were kids, his dad would let us run the cotton candy stand at the at the sportatorium and gave us let us keep all the money. This is like we were like twelve years old in nineteen seventy two and we made like fifty bucks a piece. <laughs> made a hundred dollars total and we got fifty bucks of a lot of money on your twelve in nineteen seventy two, man. You know, so I got to where I really like to go out to the sportatorium and sell cotton candy. You know, good Lord, that was a lot of money back then. But uh, we were really good friends uh, from from the beginning. I mean, I've got a picture on my Facebook page of Carrie's seventh birthday party over at their house and right outside of uh, Denton, Texas, in Lake Dallas, and of one Carrie's seventh birthday party. Wow. Was like seven of us in the picture. And David was in the picture. But uh, I still have it. I can even I can send it to you if you'd like. But that's how far we go back, and we just grew up, man. We grew up fishing and hunting, and you know we we were really into athletics. When I hit fourteen, when we hit fourteen, fifteen years old, Carrie and I kind of stood out. You know, of course it's a small school, but we we were the cream of the crop, you know. And our dedication and desire and work work ethic was second to none, and I think that's why. You know, it wasn't by chance that we moved on to another level. Even though his dad was Fritz von Erich, I mean, Kerry was had a body like a Greek god. You know, I mean, he's just a, a super nice guy. Everybody that ever met Kerry in the wrestling business said he's the sweetest guy you ever want to meet, and he was. He was. He was a really good guy. So, yeah, we hear that a lot. We do a, a show with Shane Douglas, and he talks about his relationship with Kerry, and obviously knowing him. A little bit later into Kerry's career, but still always says how nice he was and he was just, he was such a genuine guy and, and that was one of his most endearing qualities. But to match that, the literal, like you said, body of a Greek god and obviously, you know, caring for what he looks like and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, it almost looks like he was born with that. I mean, I know you said you known him since he, uh, he was little, but it's funny when you have that kind of physical form it looks like you were destined to to be that size so were you two kind of uh, running buddies when it came to the the fitness side of it and kind of training together to to kind of perfect that look because there is a look for those 80s days of wrestling but it looks like Kerry von eric obviously probably had the best body i think in the 1980s if he didn't he had one of the best but yeah we started they had a gym at their place out there that was had fully uh olympic weights and we started training probably when I, we were 14, but I call it 15 just for, you know, easy remembering. But we started lifting weights together. And, you know, he wasn't huge at first. Of course, he had great genetics with his dad. But what, here's one thing that people don't realize about Kerry and his body. Everybody just thinks, oh, he was just big and all this. That dude trained harder than he trained like a professional bodybuilder all the time. He never, he was relentless in his workouts. And he was big because he worked hard. Don't get me wrong. He had the genetics and everything, but he trained as hard as anybody I've ever seen train. So, And you can tell. I mean, my goodness, you don't get that overnight. But then also, you know, obviously the natural that, that would be becoming a wrestler in that family. And some people might even say that David was going to be the standout of the bunch. Obviously, unfortunately, he passed away at a very, very young age. Uh, but when you got to see them kind of growing up, did you see David as being that standout and, and being that next guy who they've always said was going to be groomed to be the uh, the NWA world champion? I didn't. I didn't really see it growing up with them. I mean, it, it, until I until I started wrestling, I 
I didn't really pay a lot of attention. They were just, they were just friends of mine that I grew up with, you know, that of course, you know, they were famous and everything. Now, later on, it's a different story, but when early on, I mean, when I was, you know, 20 years old in a sophomore in college, I, you know, I started wrestling that, that summer. And that's when I really started paying attention to wrestling before then they were just dudes I grew up with basically. But after that, after I started wrestling and learning the wrestling business, you could see that David David was a, was probably the best worker out of the ones. I'm talking from a, a technical and, you know, things making sense and putting matches together that tell a story. David was, was smart, you know, and Kevin was just, I mean, was like a buzzsaw all the time. But Kerry's the one that, world class he rested it on his shoulders you know uh it maybe david could work better but Kerry was the one that had the notoriety and when all three of them walked out together all the people flocked to Kerry. even though david was supposed to be the worker and take over the business and all that Kerry was the one that had the notoriety david was popular too though kevin was too everybody had their favorite but uh you know, Kerry's the only one that went out and never did anything other, you know, at another place on his own. So. Right, right. You know, and another cool thing, too, that, that we have to kind of tie into this early in the conversation is the Sportatorium itself and the building. And you said going there as a fan and as a young kid and you're selling popcorn, but when you actually get to step through the ropes, kind of describe and paint the picture for the listeners, the atmosphere and the craziness and really the bedlam of the Sportatorium. Well, I was actually extremely fortunate, man. I When I started wrestling, and when I started breaking in in 1980s between my sophomore and junior year, I, that was the heat wave here in Dallas, Texas in 1980 when it got over 100 degrees, 69 different days in the summer. And I was down at the Sportatorium. You're talking about a tin building, no air conditioning in Texas when it's 113 degrees outside during the day. So... I mean, that in itself, everybody that used to come there, like their first night, they would come to the territory, come to Dallas, and it would be July or August, and they would go out there and work and come back. They were just, they couldn't even hold their, their heads up. They would be so winded and tired because it was so hot. But it was like, it was like the mecca. It's like the pinnacle of places to wrestle. Of all the places that I wrestled, and people that came through Dallas always talk about the Sportatorium, man. I mean, it was it was set up for wrestling. It held it held probably four thousand people, maybe forty five hundred. But man, it was packed every Friday night for the whole time I wrestled, nearly through the eighties. So it, it was it was cool. I mean, it was the wrestling. I still have people say, "Man, I remember the Sportatorium." Well, you know, we did our we did our taping our channel 39 that went all around the country on friday and then we did the one that showed here locally on the dallas you know tv just here on monday night in fort worth in will rogers memorial center but everybody still talks about the sportatorium it, it was just it just it was just it reeked wrestling you know what i mean it was it was the pinnacle of all buildings i've ever wrestled in around the around the country so so as you're finishing up college and you're getting ready to really jump full time into wrestling and you're breaking into a territory like world class and you're kind of getting to see 
the guys that are coming in and out and you see some of the stars that have been in the territory, but you see a lot of the guest stars that are kind of coming in as well. You know, what's some of the advice that, that people gave you as you were kind of getting your feet wet and uh, getting rolling? Was it to focus on the work in the ring or was it kind of building up who you were to the people? Like what was the best kind of advice you were given her in those early days? Well, the advice that Fritz gave me and everybody else that worked in the business of course, the Von Erichs, you know, they lived here and they, you know, th this was their home and they didn't travel out a lot. Everybody told me, he said, you need to go to as many territories as you can and learn how to wrestle, like, you know, from the ground up. Not, you know, of course, I was taught by the Von Erichs and all that, but they said, you need to go, you know, all the different places. So I was in, I was, I graduated in June of 1982 and I stayed till. March of 83, then I, I went to Portland, Oregon for uh, nearly a year, and then I went to Mid-South, and I was even in Memphis for about three months, and from Memphis, I went to the Carolinas for a year and a half for Jim Crockett, Jim Crockett in the NWA, and that was really where, between Oregon and Mid-South, and really in the Carolinas, everybody was over in the Carolinas when I was there. So all the big names. So I learned how to, I really got polished there and became a hand, basically. And when I came back here, everybody was shocked, you know, at how I could work. And it was, it, it, it did me good going around and seeing all the different places. You, you learn a lot from all the, you know, I mean, Wahoo McDaniel. Dory Funk Jr. I wrestled Dory Funk Jr. for like four months every day for 30 minutes when I was in the Carolinas. And, you know, he was a world champion for a long time. He was like a machine. You know, Wahoo McDaniel, Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, uh, Dusty Rhodes, Tully Blanchard. I was working. Barry Windham. Uh, all of them were there when I was there. And, you know, I, I learned how to, I really learned how to work there. So I came back a polished worker. Now, you also got to deal with the different promoters, too. So you knew Fritz, and Fritz was giving you the advice to kind of get out and uh, spread your wings. But then you encounter, you got Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett. You got Don Owen. You also, like you said, you got the Crockett's. You know, what? where do you kind of rank them up against Fritz? Was their style different? Did you like working more for Fritz? Or, or how did you kind of feel dealing with all these different promoters after you uh, kind of got the blessing of Fritz to go off and, and try them out? Well, you know, I was I was a kind of associated with the Von Erichs and everybody, and everybody appreciated the fact that I was going around and not just staying in Dallas. They had a lot of respect for me. I was a good athlete, you know, a collegiate NCAA Division One athlete. Uh, coming into wrestling, I listened. I was respectful. And, you know, the, the Von Erichs had a lot of heat from a lot of other people because they were so successful, and a lot of people are jealous because they weren't the Von Erichs. I mean, it's just that simple. And a lot of people, I think, when they first met me, they thought I was going to be just a Von Erich crony, but they saw that I was my own man, and I was there to learn, and I would listen, and I, I, was, I could actually work, man. And I got more respect out of that than anything. I mean, you know, Don Owens, I mean, going up there, you worked every day. That was the key. Back then, the, all the different territories, you could go to, there was like seven or eight different territories in 1983 and in the, in the 80s where you could go work for a year and go somewhere else. 
and I, I hit four of them. But, uh, you know, the Crockett's, they were, they were all business, you know, uh, the Portland was kind of laid back and kind of, you could get by with some stuff, but you know, Crockett's ran, it's like a well-oiled machine and Mid-South, Bill Watts, he ran his, he ran his place. They did big money down there too. And they had all the good workers as well, but he was a hard ass, you know, he was hard to work for. Everything had to be his way or, you know, you just, uh, you know, he just didn't tolerate anything. So uh, I liked, I guess, out of all the places, I liked the Carolinas. It was brutal how many miles you drove a week, but I really learned how to work there because there was a bunch of big-time quality people there. So, Yeah, it's an absolute who's who. Again, it's – and it really, we could say that oh, about yeah. any territory now looking back because, I mean, if we could all kind of go back in time, we would isolate that era because everybody was uh, – basically every territory was stacked to the, to the gills. But – saying that you got to work with Dory Funk so many times, you know, Dory Funk still <laughs> to this day can get in the ring and, and work with kids that are 50 years younger than him and, and get a match out of them. But where did that bring you to the level in terms of you in the ring? Did it bring you uh, up just to work with him or did he kind of walk you through becoming a better worker in the ring? Well, they wanted to, they were, they were conditioning me to be a top level worker in the Carolinas. Uh, Dory Funk Jr. was Dory Funk Jr., Wahoo McDaniel, and the Scott brothers. George and Sandy Scott were the bookers when I first got there. And about six months before I left, uh, Dusty came in and started booking. And, you know, they were kind of conditioning me, getting me ready to, to move up to the next level. And when Dusty was there, you know, I, I worked with Tully Blanchard for the TV title over there and that's you know that was a big deal Tully Blanchard was, is a great worker man I mean technically probably in the top five workers I've ever worked with I mean to do the smart he 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 was he was a, a, a class a worker you know and I got to wrestle a bunch of a bunch of people like that you know so uh that that helped me tremendously it it did my career a lot of good but and I I did all that before I came back here Fritz didn't want me to come back until I was polished, you know, so. Now, with the NWA and Crockett's and everything, it is interesting that you were Brian Adidas, and they basically called you that for a, a long right. time there for your run there, and that's kind of what you were wrongly billed as. What's the story behind that? Was it just an error? Well, it came in, we were, you know, we, we picked the name and we didn't ever really think about any of the copyright or any stuff like that, because, you know, it, when I kind of took on the name, it was, you know, we, we weren't that big of a deal, but once we went syndicated and went all over the place, I got a letter from, from to the, at the Sportatorium from Adidas Corporation saying that they wanted revenue for me using their name. So Instead of a big long legal battle and lawyers and all that, I just took a D out of it and changed it to a D, and that's the that's the story there. So they didn't want me, and then later on they come back and wanted to <laughs> wanted me to be a rep for them after the fact. <laughs> after they saw it. first, they were like, "Hey, we don't want you using their name," and then we got big and we went worldwide and all that. And then they said, "Hey, man, we want you to wear our stuff," and I said, "Nah, I'm good, man. I just I got my own deal here." So. Uh, and that's basically the story of Adidas and Adidas. So, 
because I remember Starcade 1984 against uh, Mr. Ito. You were Brian Adidas, and then kind of obviously. Right. You, so I was curious about that story. But what was it like actually at Starcade? Because that was the it was the second Starcade, but it was really the first shows where they majorly put on this extravaganza. It was like the, the pre WrestleMania extravaganza. It was the it was the first WrestleMania, basically, and at in Greensboro, I'll never forget it. And it was a big deal. I mean, they went pay-per-view, the whole deal. I, I, I'm not for sure wh- when when pay-per-view started, but that might have been, I don't know if Starcade 1 was pay-per-view, but I know everybody that was there for the Starcade 84 when I was there, it was a big deal. I mean, it was it was huge. I mean, uh, uh, what's their name? Uh What's the the race car driver that was so popular in his son? Uh, Richard Petty and Kyle Petty Kyle were there. Petty. Yep. Uh, Joe Frazier was there for a special referee. I mean, they had all kind of people. You know, Flair and Dusty were there, and uh, Sergeant Slaughter and the Steamboat, and just the who's who, Wahoo. You know, uh, all the the huge names. But it was it was pretty cool. I was on. I was basically on my way. Then that was when uh, Dusty was getting ready to take over. But that was really cool, man. I, I, I enjoyed that. And I still remember it. I guess there wrestling that Starcade, coming back here and wrestling at Texas Stadium a bunch of times at the Cotton Bowl during the State Fair when we, we wrestled every year. Uh, Reunion Arena was the big building then. Uh, you know, Kerry's first day back after he had the motorcycle wreck hurt his foot it was me and carrie at reunion arena you know when i had turned heel and that was a pretty defining moment when you're when you're on the main event there's no, there's reunion arena is packed you know so that was that was pretty cool but starcade 84 at greensboro was still sticks out in my mind as one of the i'd say top three places i've ever worked and i definitely want to get back into that heel turn but I did want to mention you coming back to world class. So how come you left basically the Jim Crock promotions of mid Atlantic area and went back to Texas? Well, they had actually called me and had a spot for me here and, uh, wanted me to come back, you know? So they, they had things they wanted to do with me here, you know, and that's basically why I came back. I, I was from here, you know, so I, I was raised here. So, it was nice to be back home after three years of, of being home maybe twice or something, you know. So uh, my folks lived here and everything. and you know, So it was nice to come back. And, and, I mean, world class was pumping then and making money. So I was, it, was, it was a move all the way around, you know, a good move for me. So, so many great guys in world class. I don't know if a lot of people in the North – know how many great stars kind of came out of world class and were in world class, including yourself. But when you were there and you're working with, you know, Hayes and Roberts and Gordy, the Freebirds, or you're working with the dynamic duo or the midnight express. And there's so many great guys and you're teaming with, you know, with a variation of guys, whether it be uh, Iceman King Parsons or Frankie Lancaster, are you kind of sitting there thinking, wow, this is one hell of a, of a pool of talent that I get to, work with here you know i'm not really going to have any bad matches yeah it was it was uh, it, there was a lot of people and 
you know, what a, pe- a lot of people don't re- remember as well. I mean, it was a melting pot. Everybody wanted to come here. You know, it had blown up uh, the syndication show with Channel 39 that went all over. And, you know, when when you worked here, we did a lot of things, what we call spot shows at the little towns like uh, Lions Club and Booster Clubs all around the Dallas Fort in, in Texas, basically a 200 mile radius. They had all these shows set up with uh, booster clubs and all that. And man, you would go there on a Saturday night. And man, there'd be there'd be five thousand people at a little at a little you know pot up town, and you were making big money. You know, you made a ton of money at these little spot, what we call spot shows. And it, it was everybody wanted to come here, and it was a real select. They didn't carry a huge crew here like they did at some of the other places. You know, I mean, there might be twenty guys here at this territory at any given time so it was it was cool and what a lot of people don't remember the undertaker started he was here and he told me about him and percy pringle that were going he said oh man the wwf called and i got this deal i'm going to be a like this dude dressed up like an undertaker with this big long jacket percy's going to be you know paul bear uh mankind he was cactus jack right before when the when the WWF boomed, Undertaker, Steve Austin, uh, Mankind, and Rick Rude, all of these people that came through here went up there and were just megastars. You know, Steve Austin played football right here at North Texas. So, you know, there was a there was a bunch of people that were big names that came through here actually before they got their break. Absolutely, yeah. And even you got the experience of working with him, and that was the Dingo Warrior, a.k.a. the Ultimate Warrior as well. Yep. He came in here, and I switched heel, and I worked with him every night for, you know, I've got pictures of us together, but, uh, you know, Jim was a great guy. He was, you know, super strong. He was green when he was here, and, you know, I was at turned heel, and we we had really good matches together, you know, so... He was, <laughs> he's a big, strong guy, man. So what a nice guy he was to have broke my heart when he passed away. So what a bunch of people didn't know about Jim Helwig, the, the ultimate warrior. He's called the Dingo Warrior here, of course, first. But he was a chiropractor in Atlanta. He was Mr. Georgia in bodybuilding. Then he was, he was a, a very successful chiropractor. And he left that business to, to become a wrestler. So a bunch of people don't know that in Atlanta. He is definitely one of those guys where you, you can't forget him. Obviously, when he was in that territory, he was a little bit green, but the charisma and everything else, much akin to much like Kerry Von Erich, it's just that charisma, yep. it just oozes. And kind of one of those guys, when you walk into a room and you see him, you're like, that guy, he's important. He matters. Yeah. And you, you yeah. Know, they, 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 those guys. Sure. They, you know, they, they drew attention. You know, that just it, it's you either have it or you don't, you know, and it's just one of those things. And, and the, you know, the promoters, they pick up on that stuff, the, the body, the, you know, you, you either got it or you don't, you know. So I actually really enjoyed being a heel, you know, being, you're, being a, a baby face in Dallas, you were never going to be on top. <laughs> you know, you weren't going to mm. get above the Von Erich. So. When it was time, I came to Fritz with that idea, 
and uh, he didn't like it at first. But then I think the more he thought about it, the the more the more he liked it, and it worked really well. Man, when we were at the height of our popularity, when me and Al Madrill got together, Al was a great worker, man, a great wrestling mind. He was like a general in the ring. He he he'd spent a lot of he'd been wrestling a long time. I learned a ton from Al Madrill. What a great guy! I have a ton of respect for him. So, but we were we were extremely popular there. So, it is great though if you can turn heel and you get the crowd to turn on you. So when you turn on the Von Erichs in Dallas, then the crowd really really despises you because. You know, they love their Von Erichs. They absolutely love them. So when you turn heel, you know, it's your idea and everything else. Did you think it was going to go down kind of the way you had planned it? Or were you you know, a little skeptical that maybe, you know, it might turn into a riot or maybe something crazy might happen? Well, I knew it was going to be a natural. I didn't really, I didn't really know until I really got into it how, how well it worked and how people you know, I, I grew up, everybody knew I was their friend. They brought me into business and then you turn on your friend. Every, nobody likes a turncoat. So it was kind of a natural deal. And, you know, I talked about how I used them when I was growing up and just used them to get where I was going and I didn't need them anymore. It was a natural. People hated me, man. I had a brand new Corvette. And they, they were cutting my tires and breaking my windows out. And uh, I finally told them, man, let's hire somebody out here to stand by my car. <laughs> they were tearing my car up and I put an armed guard out there and all that stopped so pretty funny you're over when people are cutting your tires and breaking your windows you know what I mean so <laughs> oh, I had to have oh, the yeah. cops take me every time I left the building I had to have cops walk me to my car because people were they were hot man they loved those Von Erics here they walked on the water they were they were over better than any baby faces I've ever seen uh, probably the only baby face that's over more or as much would be Dusty Rhodes in Florida and Ric Flair and, and Ricky Steamboat in the Carolinas. That was, those people were over and walked on the water and LeVon Eric's walked on it around here. So they loved them. And it was a natural for me to, you know, uh, just be, you know, turn on them and act like I was, you know, I hated them all along, but I just used them, you know, so it was a natural. And I think Fritz was kind of shocked, too, how well it worked. So it, it, it developed into something big. You just talk a little bit about your chemistry with the Von Erichs and how you were able to play off them and maybe your history with them and you knowing them for so long, you were able to have just such a great, smooth chemistry in the ring? Well, when I came back and went, by the time I turned heel, I'd been working for several years, you know, and I I had enough knowledge and I knew what to do in the ring, you know, to, to basically lead a match and stuff like that, do things that made sense and had a, a good business mind by that time. And I worked, uh, me and Mike were the ones that started off. I mean, I turned on him and I worked with him and man, he was, he was great. I mean, he would listen and he, a pretty good little worker, you know, and he's he's a Von Eric and Kevin, you know, you just had Kit me and Kevin just fought each other like street fight every time we got together. I mean, I've been in easier street fights than fighting with Kevin, <laughs> but people people loved it. You you could see that we were getting down with each other, and uh, 
you know, David had passed away by the time I came back in 85, so I didn't ever get to work with him. That would have been great. But and then Kerry came back in 86, and I started working with him. And he and I could work together really well, too. I, I worked together, and even Lance, you know, uh, I, I worked with all of them. And it was, we all got along really well, and it was a, it, it was, it was a good deal. We, you know, we, we, put our, we put our time in, and we worked hard. You know, we didn't ever lay around. We got out, but we we all at the end of the day, it was it was about making money and putting more people in the stand. Do you think, in hindsight, the Lance Von Eric gimmick was a little too transparent to the fans? Because they were pretty smart fans. They realized he really wasn't a Von Eric, and that kind of you know didn't get over the way if they wanted to. Did you think that was a good idea at the time, or were you, were you thinking, I don't know about this? These fans might know he's not really one of the Von Erichs. I can I can see the concept of why they thought it would be good, but in the long run, as I look back, no, it 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 hurt them. You know, they, you know, David had died, and then Terry hurt himself the very next year, so they only had Mike and Kevin. You know, I mean, they were they were short on Von Erichs. You know, and Kevin and Mike couldn't carry the whole load, and they see this guy and they bring him in. You know, I, I understand the concept, but it never, it never went over like it like it should. Uh, you know, I love Lance; he was a, a super nice guy, but he just never really learned how to work. He just wasn't. He didn't have. He wasn't. He wasn't a, a blood Von Eric. You know what I mean? And people, mm-hmm. just like you said, people know that they they they're not blind. And then, you know, there's so much tragedy, obviously, David, um, Michael, Carrie, I mean, all of them end up either, you know, committing suicide or having uh, an overdose or something crazy as far as just these tragedies just kept striking world class. And at each time, you know, it took a little bit out of world class. They were so hot at one point. They're one of the best territories in the whole country, in the whole world. They were just dominating and slowly but surely each tragedy hits and it just took a piece out of world class each time. When you're a part of that, is it just kind of shocking to you each time something like that happens and almost like a little bit of, of you, you know, dies inside because all these tragedies are happening around you? It does. It has it has a distinct uh, negative effect on business and the whole culture and everything. And because you know they, these guys, they had set, they were they were it here. You know, David. You know, passed away in Japan in 84. Mike committed suicide uh, in 87. Chris, the youngest one, shot himself in the head in 91 out, out of his folk place in East Texas. And then Terry in 93. I mean, I buried four of my closest friends in nine years, man. And it was, that was tough. As I, as I look back and it was, it, 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 I mean, it was, it, it was just hard. You know, there's, there's no other. There's no other way. Not only are, are you losing a, a, a lifelong friend each time, you know, in the worst possible way, uh, you know, the business started suffering as well because, I mean, Carrie and Kevin then were the only ones left, you know. I mean, that was it. So uh, it's just hard to every, – everything Everything has its, its moment in the sun, you know, its limelight. And then – 80, end of 82, 83, 84, you know, when David passed away, it hurt him, but they still, you know, Mike was coming up, 
and we still had Kerry and Kevin that were still could carry the load. But I think when the when the world class really took a hit is when Kerry hurt his foot when he when he had the motorcycle wreck in eighty five and was out for, you know, fifteen months or whatever. That was that took a toll on the business because then it was left with Kevin and, and Mike and then they brought Lance in and I think that was you know at the at the start of the decline. It didn't decline immediately, but I think people I mean it was Kerry, Kevin and David. They were they were it. You know what I mean? And uh, they were only three years apart. You know, Kevin and David were only like thirteen months apart and Kerry was two years younger than David. So there's three brothers that are only three years apart, all three of them. So everything was set around them and it's it it, it, it takes its toll. You know, it just it, it breaks up it breaks up the family, it breaks up the business and the the flow that you had with the hope with all of them together, it, it hurt the business, that's for sure. Definitely hurt the world class. Definitely there's sad times of all that tragedy happens and and all that just you know, negative stuff happened and obviously Kevin, the the, the survivor, ended up still you know still still doing his thing but he you know he ended up as the last brother and that is very very sad when you think about it when you think about the the rise of world class and decline there's actually a really 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 good documentary out there the triumph and tragedy of world class i don't know if you have you seen it i know they they cover you in it but have you seen it oh yeah i've i've watched the there's actually been a couple different one of them but i've watched both of them that i know about and uh it was actually it was actually done really well. I mean, it uh, no holes barred. You know, the one that Kevin did when when everybody's gone and talking about all the stuff, and it was tough, man. I mean, it's that unforeseen stuff. You know, it's kind of like in, in life. You know, you're born, you live your life, and you get old, and you're eighty or ninety years old. It's one thing passing away from old age, but when unforeseen and untimely deaths occur it has an it has a profound effect on everybody and in down here in dallas von erics were uh, a bit were were people's family that was their heroes you know what i mean so when they started passing away the people started passing away with them you know and it's it's one thing to die when you're 95 from old age but when you're when you're untimely death at 21 or 24 or 30 you know it's it it's a whole lot harder on you you know so you expect somebody you know when somebody calls that hey grandpa passed away and he was 96 you know you knew it was coming but the untimely stuff is really hard to take it's hard to take for the family it's hard to take for us friends and it's hard for the business to survive you know going through that Absolutely. Uh, I mean, so well said right there. And actually, the Triumph and Tragedy is the WWE version uh, of the world class that they got the footage and they put it together. That was pretty good. But the heroes of world class were Kevin Von Erich is actually walking through the sportatorium and talking about mm-hmm. the memories and closing down. That's the really, really good documentary. Um, oh, that yeah. they did that. was, That's really emotional. It was really it, That was cool. I liked it. I mean, like I said, man, I've known Kevin since I was six years old, and man, he was just a warrior, you know. I mean, he's one of the toughest guys, literally. I mean, just from 
truthfully speaking, he was one of the toughest people I've ever met in my life. I mean, mentally, physically, uh, psychologically, he was just a tough cookie, man. And, you know, he, he survived all of it. And we still talk from time to time and we get along really well. And, you know, we talk about his, uh, Ross and Marshall were just here about six months ago or however long back. And I saw them for the first time since they were like two and four years old, you know, and we got to talking and they asked me a bunch of questions about Carrie and the, you know, all that. Cause of course they didn't, you know, they never, they never knew Carrie, you know, so they had a bunch of questions for me, but sometimes we're just, they, they remind me a whole lot of, Ross is like Kevin and uh, Marshall is like Carrie. Their mannerisms and the way they talked and the way they held their head and hmm. everything. It was it was kind of cool to see all these years later his sons, uh, just great young men, just respectful and just just the way I would expect them to be. That is awesome. The next generation uh, of Von Erichs and kind of reminding you of the glory days of Von Erichs is pretty cool. And with when I think of Carrie sometimes, you know, as I'm growing up, and then you read about it nowadays, looking back, it's like, wow, can't believe that for a period of time there, he only had one foot. You know, he had his foot amputated and he was wrestling with one foot. You literally couldn't tell. I mean, he was doing discus punches, which is one of the best punches ever. Um, he's just doing these amazingly athletic maneuvers. And you think about it, only really on one good leg, one good foot. That, yeah. And I know obviously you were involved and you knew and you knew Kerry very well. Did that ever like surprise you? Like, man, what a freakish athlete that he could do that on one leg and one foot no he was a stud man i mean he was i grew up here with him and man i mean we competed i mean if if we were gonna you know go swimming we raced to the swimming pool to do get there first everything was a competition and you know him him being the, the, the elite athlete that he was the discus thrower i mean we were you know we played football together and the, all the whole deal, who shot discus, the whole deal. But uh, people didn't really realize, unless you were here in Dallas at the time, you didn't realize how much those this Von Eric family was actually over in Dallas, Texas. I mean, when you when I'd go somewhere, me and Carrie would go somewhere. When I first started wrestling, and even later, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere. You got mobbed, man. I mean, everywhere you went, you were so popular. That TV show that showed at 10 o'clock on Saturday night, it ran for 27 years here that went under Fritz's, uh, under Fritz's watch. And Nielsen Ratings, it was the number one TV show in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for 23 years in a row. It had more viewers than any show, uh, any weekly show in Dallas-Fort Worth for 23 years. It had a 15 point uh, from a 0.0 to a 15.0 Nielsen rating. It had a 15.0 rating for 23 years in a row. Doesn't wow. get much better than that. Nope, <laughs> so not at all. Wow. Every, everywhere you went around here, man. I mean, it was you were. I mean, you were mobbed. You you were just you were. We were stars, and the, the Von Erichs even, you know, more so than anybody. I mean, they just you couldn't go anywhere. You just, you know, it's part of it. So, but you know, their, their dad was a smart guy. Fritz, one of the best, smartest businessmen I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he was just smart, uh, you know, self-taught, just a smart guy, man. He just knew what he was doing. Had great business sense. 
and he created a dynasty here for him and his boys, you know, so. You know, and you mentioned that the motorcycle accident was kind of like the, the big blow to the entire territory, but I think a lot of people either don't realize it or overlook it, but the fact that when Kerry came back, he was having his match with you where he actually rebroke the foot, which led to the amputation. So do you remember in that match where he would have gotten hurt, and did you notice that he had gotten hurt again? I did. He told me he was hurt, and uh, we... uh you know, we we tried to, you know, finish it up. It started hurting him and everything. Of course, you know, something like that, something that was that, uh, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was a terrible break in the way they tried to put it on there. It, I, it's probably, you know, they wanted him to get back. He had been, he started training again. But, you know, when you break, when you bones and stuff like that and you reconstruct stuff, it takes a long time to heal, you know. It takes two or three years sometimes for bones to, to heal and, he came back, but you know, he, it, it all worked out. I mean, he's a tough guy, but you still, at when he first came back, he really limped compared to later, you know what I mean? So it, it had only been a little over a year. So, you know, 13, 14, maybe 15 months. And, uh, he looked ready, but his, his foot was not ready. You know what I mean? So, so how do you, it, was, it wasn't anything that, I mean, that was, uh, catastrophic to hurt it. We were just doing our regular deal, and, you know, we were just – he was – it's something with me, man. He stepped on it, kind of pushed off, and I heard it pop, Oof. you know. And uh, he goes, ah, I'm hurt, man. He said – and, you know, we we worked around it and finished up the match. But uh, he was in a lot of pain. But he was a tough guy, man. So he, he worked through it. You know, later on got the prosthesis that fit. They basically cut his foot off at the ankle, and then he wore the – prosthesis from his from above his calf basically to his knee down you know below so yeah it's unbelievable uh, especially the fact that you know he was not rushed back but you know he was brought back in an effort to really help with the business overall and obviously it would cost uh cost him on that foot i mean that's unbelievable to think that um but it needed to be done he needed to get in there now how do you work around that and how careful do you have to be? Because obviously a shattered foot, the way it was, I mean, you, the, the lightest touch is going to be an ache. It's going to be a pain. So how do you kind of work around that, especially, you know, in the middle of a match? Well, as a heel, you want to act like you're wanting to hurt him. You know what I mean? But uh, there's a way to do everything. And without without jumping up and down on it, you know, I can I can make it look like I'm I'm hurting him, but the the funny thing is, I would basically go for the foot and he would kick me off. I never really ever went to work on it per se because I didn't want to take the chance of hurting him. And then, he, like I said, just an inadvertent step or whatever it was was what hurt it, you know. So uh, you you had to treat it gingerly. I didn't want to. You know, of course, we grew up together and all that. Even if we wouldn't have, I wouldn't want somebody, I wouldn't want to hurt him, you know. So, but uh, he looked the part. I mean, come back, he was huge, man. His upper body, I mean, he was just big because he'd started training again and for a long time before he came back. And he, I mean, he looked as good when he came back as he'd ever looked, you know. So, and later on, you know, when he was in the WWE, dude, he was, he was huge. I mean, he was a monster at, you know, one point. So, Oh my gosh, Unbe unbelievable look, just uh, the absolute uh, top of the heap 
when it comes to that. And we've said that multiple times. But before I hand it back to John here, I just want to ask you about kind of the differences in working with Fritz, but also working with a Ken Mantell and a Gary Hart. Now, how did you kind of click with them in terms of some of the booking uh, ideas that were going on back then? Well, Gary, Gary was the booker when I first broke in and started. And then uh, Ken came in right uh, before I went to Oregon. And that's when Dallas really popped here. It's when they really started doing. I think Ken was in, a, was in the perfect place at the perfect time. He got a lot of credit for being the booker. But there was a whole bunch of different people making decisions. But uh, I, got along, I got along good with all of them. You know, it, you were a family. And... It's almost like a corporation, you know. You have a job to do, and when you do your job correctly, everybody succeeds. And everybody knew that here, you know. Everybody knew that the Von Ericks were the number one baby faces, and you had the top heels that they'd come in for a while, and they'd work with them. Then they'd go somewhere else and bring a new crew of heels in. And when you were a baby face, you were gonna you were gonna be under them, and that was just part of it. But you know, it's like anything else. You accept your role on a football team in a corporation, anything that has a hierarchy and a structure, you, you've got to become part of that to be successful. And as we start to wind it down here, after the end of World Class, you know, a little bit later, they do have Global uh, GWF comes in. They are running Dallas. They are running Sportatorium. They are on ESPN. But it's not quite the same without the Von Erichs. Do you think Global... Had a, had a possibility of lasting, or did you kind of know that they weren't really going to be long for the business? I knew that was never going to work. You were never going to get over the monarchs here. You don't, you weren't going to bring people in and make them new heroes here. It just wasn't going to work. So I knew their days were numbered anyway. So Now, you mentioned you loved wrestling the Von Erichs, turning heel on them, teaming with Al Madrid, and, uh, Al Madrid excuse me, and just being a great team that, that you were, but do you have some other favorite matches that you've had, whether it be in world class or maybe even in the Carolinas? Well, working with, uh, I w- Kurt Hennig was in the start from the beginning. I mean, I worked with Kurt Hennig was in Portland when I was there and we had a great time and Kurt was kind of new. He'd only been working a couple of years and I've been working, but, he was a great worker already. I enjoyed, we did tag teams with him and, uh, stuff like that. I mean, I worked with playboy, buddy Rose, uh, Billy Jack Haynes was up there. Rip Oliver, uh, Piper used to come up there. So, you know, I got to work with Roddy and stuff, but, uh, working with, I guess some of the, the best matches I've ever had with people that are good workers, uh, uh, Tully Blanchard was one of my favorite because, of course, Dory Funk Jr., me and Wahoo McDaniel teamed together over there. You know, I worked with Ricky Steamboat in a tag team, uh, Jay Youngblood, Don Kernodal, all those guys over there that were, you know, Arn Anderson, all, all of them, Barry Windham, Mike Rotundo. I worked with all those guys, Dusty and stuff. So I've, I've got a bunch of fond memories from uh, – you know, from a bunch of those days, but you know, big names, you know, working with a world champion, like Dory, that was always really cool. It's hard to, hard to beat somebody like that as as far as an icon, you know? Absolutely. Yes. Can you think of somebody from, from your world-class days or maybe a couple of guys that you worked 
that maybe the normal casual fan wouldn't really know off the chance, but to somebody that you just thought was underrated and just put on some great, tremendous matches? I was just talking about this the other day on my Facebook page, on my Brian Adias Facebook page. Everybody out there listening, you can go to Brian Adias, A-D-I-A-S, and like my page and see all the stuff that I post there. Uh, Hollywood John Tatum. I don't know if you remember him, but he was oh, yeah. one of the most most underrated best heels I had ever worked with. He was a great worker, man, and uh, I always loved working with him. Steve Regal, I worked with Steve Regal at Texas Stadium. What a great worker he was, you know. But uh, uh, just I think John Tatum, a dude named Jack Victory too, that was here. Jack Victory could work. Uh, Lynn Denton, the grappler was a great worker, you know? I mean, just uh, Rip Oliver, a bunch of people that you never really saw big names, but they were great workers, man, so. Eric Embry, Killer Tim Brooks, there's a lot of good guys. Killer Tim Brooks, oh, absolutely. Man, just, uh, I got a picture that uh, I'm putting on Facebook with him of 1982 when I first started. Uh, I wrestled him all around. I've got pictures of him. Uh, here recently in the last couple of years as well, seeing him at some reunion stuff, but what a, what a tough guy he was, man. So Jose Lothario, remember Jose? So, Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. I wrestled with all those guys, man. So pretty cool. Bill Irwin, Scott Casey, a lot of good oh, random Bill and Bill and Scott there. Irwin, uh, Scott Casey. Uh, let's see who else. Man, I got to just sit there and think back. There were so many of them. Kelly Kaniski was a great worker. I mean, uh, uh, solid. Uh, James Beard, the referee, he told me, he said, still to this day, he said, I've refereed tens of thousands of matches, he said, but one of the best matches that I've ever seen in my life where everything meant something, the psychology, everything was you and Kelly Kaniski at Texas stadium. He said, it's one of the best matches I've ever seen in my life. And he said, I'm not saying that because you're sitting here. It was just, y'all just were both just at the top of your game, you know? So. Yeah, that's so awesome. And before we get into the end here and we kind of give more people the, uh, the ability to check out your Facebook page, as well as some of the other things you have going on in your career. uh, The way we like to end it is we like to kind of, do the old look back. So we've gone over and we've talked about your great memories and your, your friendships and the matches and, and all the moments. But when the book is closed on Brian Adias and, and professional wrestling is long said and gone, what do you want people to remember about your career? Is it that you were able to go to different territories and do your thing and, and make a name for yourself and, and have great matches and, and make a living? Or was it the fact that you were able to provide such a spark in the territory like a world class where people can literally go back right now and watch it as if it was happening in real time? Because what you guys did in that territory still, like I said at the top of this interview, absolutely unparalleled when you look at the grand scheme of things. Well, I think my my shining moments were when I came back here and actually I, I I wasn't just, I guess what I'd want to be recognized as I was somebody that was friends with the Von Ericks, but I made my own way and I turned out to be a good worker that could work with anybody and have great matches and 
have the people remember me as somebody that when I went out there, I left it all in the ring. I mean, I give a hundred percent on everything I do. I did it when I was a teenager. I did it when I was in college. Uh, and I did it when I was wrestling. I never wanted to, I wanted to be somebody they remember and people that I still talk to today, they always say, man, y'all, you know, world-class, that was a deal. And you're just, I was associated with that. And that's a really good feeling. I'm, I'm really proud to be associated with world-class and one of the, they actually, when I went to New York, they called me the Texas legend. So that's pretty cool to, for, to be, you know, remembered as something like that. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And this has been so much fun to get to talk to you and, and fill in a lot of holes that we've been wondering for many, many years and uh, walk down memory lane. This has been really cool, but also got to throw out there the fact that you're in the real estate industry now. And uh, as somebody who just bought his first home very recently, uh, if I knew that my real estate agent was a, uh, a former wrestler, uh, we'd be looking at houses every day, uh, about 10, 12 hours a day. So tell us a little bit more about what you got going on, Brian, as well as the plugs for your Facebook page, please. The floor is yours. Okay. Well, my partner and I, Chad Odom, we own North Texas Home Zone. It's uh, ntxhomezone.com. We're premier realtors here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We are licensed in Texas and 13 other states. But uh, we have a Facebook page, NTX Home Zone. Uh, if you want to go on there and look at it, we have all of our information on there. We, we love the Dallas-Fort Worth area and in Texas in general, but uh, if you're looking for a home, give me a call, and I'd be happy to help you. We're first class, and we do everything we can for our clients to get them in the home that they deserve. Yeah, absolutely, and the Facebook page as well. So they're just going to go and search Brian Adias and uh, like the page, and they can get all this great world-class goodness and some of the other things that you share on the page, the stories, the pictures, and uh, whatever else you got going on in, uh, in your world. That's cool. Yep. NTX Home Zone and Brian Adias, both on Facebook. Come see me. Absolutely. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun and uh, hope you enjoyed it just as much as we did. I did. Thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.